Hi there, and welcome to the Science Media Centre's podcast. We've decided to look back at some of the biggest stories we've been involved with over our first 20 years. I'm your host, Fiona Fox, and I'm the founding director of the Science Media Centre. These discussions are basically fireside chats with three or four key people who we worked with on some of these major stories. I should say that the questions I ask are based on my own memories and not necessarily accurate, objective, researched accounts of what happened. So today's podcast focuses on the battle for human-animal hybrid embryos, and I've brought together two of the scientists who played a central role in the campaign to overturn a proposed ban on that research, and one of the science journalists who covered the story. Um, So we have here today with us Professor Robin Lovell-Badge from the Crick, um, and Professor Chris Shaw, who's a scientist and clinician at King's and an expert on motor neuron disease, and also Fiona McRae, who is the former science reporter on the Daily Mail. So you can add any more to those introductions if you want to. Um, But um, straight away, I just want to go to asking the two scientists in the room. Um, There's a little bit of of explanation of the science very briefly, but also um, what bit you were playing in it at the time. So shall we start with you, Robin? Of course, yes. Um, So we're, I guess, back back then, so we're talking early, early, 2000s, we had, uh, actually 2001, the HFEA Act was changed to allow derivation of human embryonic stem cells in the UK. And uh, the also to do uh, therapeutic cloning, so cloning to then derive embryonic stem cells from embryos. But that was already there legally in, in 2001. And there were a few labs around the world trying to do this therapeutic cloning, which is you uh, do the nuclear transfer, uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer, however you want to call it. You take the nucleus from a, a, a normal body cell, like a skin cell, uh, and transfer that into an enucleated um, early um, enucleated egg uh, and uh, zap it, and it starts developing. But you stop it when it gets to the sort of blastocyst stage after a few days from which you can then derive an embryonic stem cell line. And the this was thought to be a valuable approach to obtain patient-specific uh, peripotent stem cells, embryonic stem cells, from which you could then study the, the disease and how that developed in that patient, for example, perhaps ultimately derive cells for regenerative medicine to to try and help help cure a problem in, in a patient. So there was a lot of promise with this idea, but uh, doing it practically turned out to be very difficult. Uh, a lab in Korea uh, uh, published a paper claiming that they were able to do this using human eggs and human cells to do the therapeutic cloning. But then it turned out that there were it wasn't as efficient as they claimed. In fact, probably a lot of the results were made up mm. in that paper. <clears throat> so there was then proposals of, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this efficiently to deal with the, the shortage of uh, human eggs that you needed to, to do this type of, of research? And we started hearing, or I started hearing um, rumors that there were people in China using animal eggs to do this. And I actually met 
one person who had published a paper and, or publishing a paper and claiming to have done this using particularly rabbit eggs and to have derived several embryonic stem cell lines from human somatic cell nuclei placed into enucleated rabbit eggs. And I think we thought this was an important topic to, to raise and discussed it with you and you thought, oh, a briefing might be helpful on this. And so we had a briefing at the Science Media Centre. So it was myself, Anne McLaren, yeah. and I believe Stephen Minger, uh, who was uh, at King's at the time. And we um, raised this with the journalists as a sort of background briefing. And that generated a little bit of excitement. <laughs> um, so, Chris. Yeah. <clears throat> so, how did I get involved? Well, mm. I'm a simple clinician, um, really looking <laughs> at uh, discovering genes that cause motor neuron disease. Uh, for those of you who don't know motor neuron disease, it's a progressive, <laughs> paralyzing, and ultimately fatal illness. Uh, and I was approached um, by Ian Wilmot, um to see whether he wanted to work together to, to use cloning of human patient cells to try and model the disease in a dish using uh, nuclear transfer. Uh, and the idea was we would take patients in, in whom there was obviously a gene defect, that we would generate stem cells, turn those into motor neuron cells, and see uh, what was abnormal about them, and to see whether we could reverse that and rescue it. Uh, so that was a very simple idea. <clears throat> and um, he led an application to get a license uh, based around the work on this you know, fatal disease. Uh, and the idea was that we would use eggs that had failed um, fertilization for IVF. So these are women that would be counseled and um, consented to, to provide the eggs that were spare uh, if they'd had successful IVF, uh, and that these eggs had failed. <clears throat> so that was the idea. Uh, and it's fair to say that uh, there was no successful experiments from that. It was extremely difficult. These eggs were not uh, really receptive to nuclear transfer or stimulation to, to um, start to divide. Uh, and we were aware of the work of Wu Suk Wang, and uh, we went over to see him twice. And there are a whole lot of stories about uh, his setup, but obviously it was a, a very large organization. Uh, and we had a formal ideas about a collaboration. We were going to send patient cells, fibroblasts and fibroblasts there, and he was going to do the nuclear transfer. But then we became aware that uh, there was a very short interval between um, when the eggs were derived and the nuclear transfer happened. In fact, it was said to be 15 minutes. And it turned out that many of these eggs were actually from young women in his laboratory. Um, and this was obviously a pretty big ethical concern. At the same time, uh, there were, there was evidence from his publication, uh, I think it was in Nature, that, um, some of the, uh, images had been duplicated and some of the genotyping had been falsified. And, and then the whole story broke that this was a discredited paper. Uh, and this threw, um, very poor light on the whole area of using cloning to try and study disease. So um, we were invited to um, Science Medical Center to try and defend the science behind this and, and the justification for it. And rather foolishly, well, sensibly, Ian uh, declined to join that particular party. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was sit there, sitting there as, um, as the minor party. Um, and I promoted the idea that instead of using human eggs, it seemed to be extremely difficult. We could use animal animal eggs in particular at the evidence that Robin mentioned about rabbits and cow eggs, because obviously we can get those in the tens of thousands. And uh, so the number of eggs that fail 
uh, is is a trivial problem really compared to uh, having the success of generating a stem cell with patient DNA in it. Um, and of course, that led to uh, an eruption amongst the journalists in the room, uh, and uh, suddenly re- realised that I had put my foot in it. And um, and then there's a long story after. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'll come to you in a minute, Fiona. But um, this is bringing back so many memories. But I think what's what's critical about this is. We've talked here already about two press conferences. Um, the first was, as you say, Robin, when you had gone to China with Anne McLaren or others to, to find out, is, is this feasible? Um, or you'd, I don't know if you'd gone, but you were going. I, I think, got, I'd gone to China for, to, for other yeah. reasons, but oh, I we, think we met. You'd found out. The, yeah. We went one, the place we visited with the lab where. This yeah. particular scientist was yeah, working was, and we saw working. all her data yeah. and her so on. So, so I just feel like already we're getting to the bit where I think things were changing because the Science Media Centre had been set up. We had been invited to be proactive, to uh, embrace controversy. We were set up in the wake of MMR and GM crops and animal research. And, and this, the narrative before had been these scientists who were fe- the best scientists, actually, the ones who are actually doing the field trials on GM or, you know, who are leading experts on vaccines, running away from the controversy and leaving it to whoever. And, and I could see already that this was one where we could change this if you were proactive. And if the, the people that the journalists or the scientists that the journalists first heard about this approach from was the scientists themselves, not from the pro-life groups or or the kind of anti-stem cell people. So we did that initial briefing, which, as you say, generated quite a few scary headlines. And then, as you rightly say, with Ian Wilmot, who, who <coughs> discovered famous for, for discovery or generating, the, the, the word isn't discovering, making Dolly the sheep, um, that that also led to kind of scary headlines. But all of the coverage under those headlines and those images and was all your voices. This is a thing. And you were the people who were introducing this approach and why you want to do it. I remember from the first briefing, Chris, with you, when somebody was saying, you know, but Kat, how can you do this? You're playing God and this is messing with nature and this is just a step too far and the yuck factor. And I remember you just had a passionate outburst at one stage and just talked about your patients and, you know, diagnosing them with something which is going to kill them in two years in the most horrific way, very often in their 40s or 50s. I mean, just a a horrible, horrible disease. And at that stage, there was no treatment. There was no cure. There was nothing you could sit there with with that diagnosis and say, we can fix this. So to close down an area or not explore an area that could, as you say, model this disease in a dish and help you to identify those treatments. I thought the journalists responded really well to that. So, So my recollection, of these things was even though there were scary headlines, the coverage was so it's that um, tension, isn't it, between you're, you're generating scary headlines, which other people think, oh, God, this is a disaster. But actually, um, f- as far as we were concerned, this was the way you should do it. You should embrace this controversy because it's going to be controversial anyway, but get good science and your voices in there. So, Fiona, over to you. Uh, you had been on the Daily Mail not that long, I think, when all this started. Yeah, I joined the Mail in 2004, and I earned my stripes for a year doing general news, um, standing a lot of doorsteps when a lot of people weren't in. And, uh, <laughs> and then after a year, I got the chance to cover science, and I thought this is going to be the best job ever because I get to combine the two things. <laughs> um, and it was, um, I guess it was about 2007, I started um, covering the, the hybrid embryos. 
Um, yeah. And what's your memory of it? Do, was um, my memory as as a sort of fledgling science journalist was it was just like an amazing area to get to learn about and to write about because had all these elements in it. You know, it had the what you might want to call either the yuck factor or the g whiz factor. You know, this sort of contro- controversy. Mm. Um, there was the human interest, you know, there was real sort of ta- potential tangible benefits you could explain to readers. Um, and it was, it was just a cracking tale, you know, at the end of the day. Um, and it was also great for me to sort of learn, learn a little bit about the science of it. Um, and I, I remember there being a lot of interest from, from editors. Um, I remember one day being being charged with finding out and explaining the difference very clearly between a hybrid and a chimera. Um, and I remember um, as time went on, I guess this will come to this, but it became a lot more politicised. I think, yeah. yeah. So, so the appetite mm. in the mail at that time mm. was it? Did did you feel it was for a sensational story? Did you feel you had to slightly battle for? for kind of measured accurate coverage or did they just like you think it was a cracking story and you were actually free to report it how you wanted? I think by by and large, the first couple of years, certainly it was sort of treated as you may disagree, but to me it was treated as a cracking story. And I did have, did have a look back at pre, you know, the stories from the time. Can you read out some of those? So I think yeah. Chris Chris made the point that he accidentally yeah. told a room full of journalists on at the Huang briefing that he and Ian were applying for this license to do research on hybrids. Have you got some of the headlines that he generated? Yes. <laughs> he may not want to be reminded of this, but so the one from the mail at the time after the Huang briefing was clone team want to grow human cells and rabbit eggs, which yeah, pretty measured. Yeah. It's not not so bad. For some reason I pitched the pig and the story and some <laughs> rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> Then a few months later, well, now scientists want to create an embryo that's half cow, half human. Um, oh, Franken bunny with yeah. a picture of a bunny. Is well, that's it? great. Uh, Coming soon. Oh, see, to me, as a journalist, it's great. Coming soon to a lab near you, Franken bunny. Then a picture from Wallace and Gromit. I mean, if that's not going to draw the reader into the story, <laughs> well, but this is this is interesting. <laughs> I do find this interesting because I think that scientists absolutely hate those. And I always remember at the end of this, for, you know, go forward two or three years. Lisa Jardine was a guest speaker at the opening of the RI, which had been, the Queen was there, and said it, the way the British media have covered this story of hybrid embryos is appalling. And I was so upset, mm. and I wrote to her and said, "Oh my God, it's the biggest success story." And, People from all over Europe were coming and saying, how did you manage to do it so well? So so let's go back then to, to the kind of second section of this, which is this BAM. So we, we talked about the fact that it had been in the media. The Again, I think this is really important that, that the UK science and health journalists were all over this. They started to get to know you. I think I remember setting up, Fiona, you with a chat with Stephen Minger at one stage. Yeah. You said, can you put me together with somebody who can just sit and explain it to me? Um, in really accessible terms. And he was willing to do that. A lot of the scientists, or, or you two in this room, but um, several others were really prepared to spend the time with the journalists. So so the public had heard about this approach and the journalists had heard about it and, and they'd heard about it in a good, measured and accurate way. And then 
the SMC Christmas party, legendary party, though I do say so myself. Um, but maybe this isn't where you all heard about it, but this is certainly, and I actually honestly, genuinely remember, um, kind of, you know, cause I, I'm, I'm the host of this party. So I'm kind of looking around the room thinking, who else do I need to speak to and who's here and are people having a good time? And I could see, um, Evan Harris, who is then the, um, MP for Oxford, Lib Dem MP, but he was on the Science and Technology Committee and he was honestly a massive champion of science in Parliament. So he was always at these parties and everyone in the scientific community loved Evan because he was their kind of uh, eye to Parliament. But he was walking around this party and every crowd he went into became bigger and bigger and they were all looking alarmed and concerned. And I knew something was going on. There was a kind of free song yeah. going around the party. Um, and it was probably one of the biggest issues we dealt with that year anyway, this story. So eventually he got to me and he said, they're going to ban it. They're going to ban it. And he, he was always very, um, uh, a details person. Sometimes he used to bore me to death with these white papers he'd take out in the pub and say on page 245, line B. I've seen this, but that's what he'd done. He'd read the whole white paper, which was the new um, human fertility and embryology bill being um, updated and found this government will move towards, I think that was the language, banning research on Mm -hmm. human-animal hybrids after um, a public consultation which you described Robin so so yeah when did you find out that this was happening was it at that part were you all at that party or was it in the days later or did you know it was coming uh, I was at that party I hadn't known beforehand what the white paper had said I hadn't I'd missed that uh, as had several others and so it was Evan Harris who who pointed it out to me and then we all started getting a little (laughs) agitated about this (laughs) Think probably drank a bit more I was gonna say. <laughs> than we were going to. Any excuse to drink more? Yeah, Chris, that, were you there? That's what I um, I heard about it, and I felt enormously guilty that I had somehow provoked this by um, stating something that I thought was an obvious opportunity to really advance science and hopefully, you know, medicine for for my patients. Um, that suddenly turned into a nightmare um, with the whole field being suppressed and banned. And all this wonderful science that could happen um, and could deliver something very exciting uh, might not happen in the UK. You know, that could be devastating. Uh, and I would say 15 years on, that science directly has led to really important discoveries and actually therapies in my own field. So, wow. so we yeah. were right, although we didn't know it at the time. Yeah. And the threat was that this would all be shut down and that I would have a significant role in having, you know, triggered this reaction. And I did feel that we kind of grabbed a tiger by the tail in our, in our interactions with the, with the media. Uh, and that's when you and the, and the science media center really came to the rescue to say, okay, we have to have a strategy about how we deal with these questions, how we try and uh, communicate our ideas and um, be genuine and open and, and transparent, but you need to be available. And so there was a host of uh, television, radio, newspaper interviews uh, and then there were some important discussions with a variety of parliamentary groups to try and reverse this and ended up in nearly having a fight in, in Strange Bar in, in, in Parliament. <laughs> I definitely That's want to talk story. about. I definitely <laughs> want to talk about strangers bar in the House of Commons. Um, so that that's really interesting. Then, so so we we kind of discovered at the same time. Fiona, were you at that party? Were you aware of it then, or was it? You know what? I'm I'm not sure. I may have had too much mulled wine to, to have that memory. <laughs> 
I, I, you're casting aspersions of her. But certainly within days of that part, because I think um, I write in my book about uh, poor old Rachel Buchanan, who was definitely at the party and was already very linked in w- with all of you guys. And who, uh, luckily, I, I think I did have a hangover, but I was up earlier than Rachel the next day. And it just, I felt, as, as you just said, Chris, this this one isn't one where you just lurch from one thing to the other. This is a ban, you know, a government ban on an entire area of research, as you say, Chris, with all the kind of attendant consequences of that. So I think I got it, phoned up you lot and said, don't speak to any media, which is something I never do. I, I never do that. And the SMC is not about giving exclusives or, but I have this real strong sense of impact that on this one, um, you know, someone talking to Rachel today and Fiona McRae tomorrow and people who just get the story because they were at the party rather than giving this story to everybody at the same time at a minute past midnight embargo. So it's on the front pages. So I always remember being Rachel being absolutely horrified because when she got up the next day, which was a bit after me, she phoned Stephen and you and Stephen Minger and you, Robin, and, and said, right, we'll do this tomorrow. And you all said, Fiona's told me not. And she phoned me up and went absolutely balmy at me. And she was absolutely right. And actually, it's just a a, a thing about the tension between a science press officer and science journalist. They want the story. They want the exclusive. um, But our responsibility was to science and, and to you guys to get impact. So I do remember that we had a briefing about a week or so later. Um, I think it might have even been a Friday for Monday. It was definitely timed for maximum impact. Mark Henderson was the science editor of the Times at that stage and had already negotiated with, he was at the party. He was, uh, knew Evan well. And he, yeah, he'd negotiated a front page, which Fiona now for our listeners is holding up. My goodness, I haven't seen that for a while. Let, let me have a look at it. So this is the front page of the Times, medicine faces ban on rabbit human embryos. But you see, look at that. Isn't that lovely? So there's a picture of an oversized rabbit, which they couldn't uh, resist. But then there's a graphic of literally one, two, three, four, five steps of, of what goes into the creation of a human-animal embryo for purposes of research. Um, the subtitles on this are Move Hits Hopes of Alzheimer's Sufferers. Um, and ministers caving into religious groups. So, um, so yeah, just a little bit more then on Chris. You've already alluded to the fact that it was well organised. There was, uh, and my memory is that um, I set up the media group, which used to meet in our science media centre in the Royal Institution, and then I think Sarah Norcross on Progress Education Trust set up the parliamentary group. So they were actually a bit separate. Policy, you guys went to all of them. Policy officers and scientists went to that one. Press officers like Katrina from the Wellcome Trust, Nick Hillier from the Academy of Medical Sciences, and actually a lot of the medical research charities, so the Motor Neuron Disease Association, Alzheimer's Research UK, Parkinson's UK. So that, they were very powerful, I think, and organisations like the AMRC. And we got organised and it felt like no opportunity was missed. Every angle on this story, we held another briefing or we put you guys up. The Catholic Church came out over an Easter and condemned this as Frankenstein and, uh, you know, anti-life and all of that. And you guys just went straight into radio studios and challenged that. So is, is that your memory of it, Fiona, that you felt like the scientists were like in your face all the time? I felt like it was never away from the science media center. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> like it was here all yeah, the time. Yeah. But also I remember how 
open the scientists were. And for me, it was great to have access to people um, like yourselves that other I might not otherwise have had access to. Um, and also, I think that their passion shone through as well, and I think that really helped to um, get get the stories in the papers. There, there was no, I don't think there was any, even though, like I say, there were these, um, um, as you said, half, half human, half cow, and um, the woman, I think that was the son, the woman with the cow's head. I actually don't think there was any animosity between the science and health journalists and, and the scientists. It just didn't, f- it felt like a very... You came, the scientists were open with you, you got it, you understood why they wanted to do it. So you would always go for your quote from, was it um, Genetics Interest Group that that Dave King yes. was, and then there was CORE, the yeah. Committee on Reproductive Ethics yeah. with Josephine Quintavalli. So those quotes were always in there for kind of balance, but they were towards the end of the articles generally. Apart from a few journalists who usually work for the Sunday papers, I felt I felt that the the news media was was fine with this. It didn't feel like one of those rows between science and the media. Chris, what's your memory? Not exactly like that. I realised that um, I had stepped in it, and that uh, <laughs> the level of interest was was greater than I had anticipated, and the kind of questions were a little bit edged, so that I could step into it again pretty okay. quickly. Um, and then uh, there were a number of interviews, including with Josephine Quintavala, uh, even on television. I can't remember whether it was BBC or CNN. Uh, and this was a real battle in, in which basically she just tried to talk all over me. And she positioned herself between me and the interviewers on, in a flat table and would lean forward uh, when they were trying to ask me a question so that I couldn't actually make eye contact with them to, to, to give my account. So I realized we were up against some seasoned professional campaigners in this. And um, I, I guess uh, the, the best outcome I felt was, was in an in a interview with the moral, on the moral maze um, with your sister yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, a, and a journalist uh, who's, who's Melanie <laughs> Phillips, Phillips from the Daily Mail. Uh, and talking wasn't. about how, uh, you know, this is the destruction of embryos, the destruction of life. And I was able to dissemble that by saying, you know, you know, Asking you very specifically, but if you've taken oral contraceptive, then you've probably destroyed more embryos than we ever will, Um, uh, just by the way oral contraceptives work. And um, this, you know, she just was kind of stymied and completely (laughs) shut up. And um, I felt finally that I was able to communicate these ideas successfully and uh, was not, you know, skilled in the art, but but not as frightened and... um, uh, cornered as I had felt previously. So you really learnt on the job then is what you're saying. Yeah, so well, you walked you, into this is quite a, a naive... good advice yeah. and you also gave me feedback on how things went, what went well and what didn't go well. And also I felt safe in the SMC. And going out into other studios was a little bit more risky, but in the SMC I felt very much that, you know, you were choreographing the kind of interactions we had and then there'd be a debrief afterwards and that was very positive. Yeah. Okay. And Robin, you that one of my memories. Of, I mean, there were many. You did so much media, but one of them was um, on the Sunday. The I think it no, it was yeah. it was I think it was Good Friday. And my mum, who we're from a very devout devout Irish Catholic family, and my mum was um, in town, and I, I took her and my little boy to mass. Um, and there on the altar, the priest read out this long letter, and their Easter letter was condemning human-animal hybrid research, but it was also getting it wrong. 
completely getting it wrong and talking about admixed embryos and merging all the different kind of possible combinations together in an inaccurate, misleading way. So I actually walked out of the church and left my mum and my little boy um, and got on the phone to you and probably all of you. We got quotes and we actually put those quotes out that day um responding to this criticism but then you spent the whole of easter in studios and they were always remote and they were closed and there was hardly any staff there because it was easter remote as in um you know you weren't on the today program live with john humphreys you were down the line in some godforsaken little studio but you just did loads of interviews on that so this was to this was um easter 2007 so the the bill had been rewritten by then and so the it incorporated not just the animal-human hybrids, but other things um, in, in the human admixed embryo part of the bill. <laughs> and so, yes, some of the the opposition to that uh, got muddled things up, uh, which sort of helped a little bit in in our arguments. I always had the advantage, unlike Chris, in that I wasn't proposing to do this work myself. So I could, you know, I've never actually worked with a human embryo. I could simply talk about principles and how this was. Um, you know, banning this was if like a challenge to the, the the potential benefits of science and and to treating patients, etc. Understanding what's going wrong. Um, so I I I, um, I can't say I always enjoyed the interviews, but the, I always enjoyed the challenge of the interviews. And uh, that particular Easter was completely crazy um, mm. because many scientists were on holiday that weekend as well, not contactable. So I remember Stephen Minger and I are literally running from one interview to another um, <laughs> over that long weekend. Um, so, so when do you feel like the tide started to turn, or had it already by that Easter when the Catholic Church did their really big kind of fight back? Was it because I do remember? Do you remember some NHS visit where where Tony Blair, the then Prime Minister, was asked and said, "Actually, I'm not, I'm not minded to ban mm-hmm. it." Yeah. And then, and then, of course, when you talk about the uh, the bar yeah. in the House of Commons, I remember yeah. sitting in that bar with they called a Red Dawn, Dawn Primarolo, the, yeah. the mm-hmm. um, yeah. health secretary, <clears throat> and she was sitting with us. So something yeah. must have happened that that even though it was still written as a proposed ban, that yeah. the politicians, again, I think listening but, to the media and listening to the scientists. Um, were not themselves supportive of I'm, this. I may be getting this wrong, but I think there had been a, um, a select committee, which is a joint House for Commons, House of Lords select committee that looked into this. That had some effect. Right. Um, and then, of course, the uh, Academy of Medical Sciences was commissioned to do a report on interspecies embryos. And uh, I was part of that, that report group, that committee. And that also, I think, had a you know, important effect on government. They realised that actually these these weren't things to be scared about. Yeah, um, and that you know it was a it was a very good committee with a, a broad membership, and so there were people on that committee who were not particularly favourable. But the consensus view was right. that it should go ahead, yeah. and having, the government having a consensus view like that, I think, was helpful. So it was becoming clear that the the weight of sensible. Yeah. Scientific opinion was on side for the um, Chris. You didn't. You didn't ever say you knew it was going to work, did you? I think you were always quite careful to mm. not say. In fact, it was almost the opposite, wasn't it? Allow us to use 
animal eggs because, as you said earlier, Robin, yeah. that, that this is so imprecise and hard to do yeah. that we don't want to be wasting um, eggs donated by humans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was always going to be challenging. Um, I guess from my point of view, it was closing, it was the threat of closing down an opportunity to make important discoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the technology has moved on since then yeah. and it's proven to be a really important way of studying disease and developing therapies. Yeah. And Fiona, what was your, did you have a, I mean, you've been covering this, but you've been, co- you'd been covering it from the science perspective. Were you watching closely the politicians and how the vote was turning out? Or what, did you see your job as reporting what the scientists were saying? Or I guess I was keeping an eye on it because I felt quite invested in it by that stage. But um, as often happens in newspapers, the story then become a political one. It's been covered by the political team. And I still had my own day's work to do. So it was a case of keeping an eye on it with, with interest um, while doing everything else. The, the mm. Daily Mail was certainly not opposed to this research, was it? It felt to me like it was for it, but I can't remember whether there are any actual editorials supporting it. I, I think as, as time moved on, it became it did become quite anti, actually, I think, as, did as it? the book became yeah. closer. Yeah. But yeah. occasionally you would see... You know, the, the science journalist writes something positive, and, yes, the, and, and then the, the, editorial the main editor, editorial would be negative. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. Within, I think within it, the same paper. Yeah. Embryo revolt grows. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. And as mm. you said, James Chapman, I remember him mm. as well, deputy political editor. Um, so Gordon Brown is facing an unprecedented challenge to his authority over plans for embryo research. So, so the vote happened. Um, and science prevailed. I mean, the, the, and, and I must say, we're talking a lot about the media, the, the policy officers and that group that I said led by, um, Progress Education Trust and with Welcome and, uh, MRC. Um, they have done a lot of sterling work. And I know you guys were in, in and out of parliament a lot, um, doing what do the, what do they call? I can't remember the word they use that when you're meeting. MPs, surgeries, surgeries, having surgeries with MPs mm-hmm. to lobby them. Do you remember that? And committee meetings. So there were, there yeah. were cross-party committee meetings and there were yeah. party-specific meetings and then there was a science and technology committee. And I think one of the things we managed to sell is this would be a very backward step for UK science right. to, to stop this area because it's a really important area for, for us to build technologies that would lead to, you know, wealth to the country, yeah. you know, and, and, and a very backward sort of approach. In which our, our American friends, of course, were suffering because uh, their things were so politicised, particularly very strong religious um, uh, influence in, in their in their government. Uh, and embryos, of course, have been banned. Working with embryos have been banned for any uh, federal funding by George Bush. Yeah. So uh, this was a kind of help for us um, to say, actually, we're not we're not silly like that. We're we, we're we're a sensible, rational uh, community, and, and we want to support good science. Yeah, that's that's true, isn't it? And you did, you know, Gordon Brown, he'd obviously come in by that stage, but Tony Blair and Gordon Brown definitely wanted to be a pro-science government, didn't yes. they? And they wanted AstraZeneca and Glaxo and companies like that to stay in the UK and see it as to a build science. On this. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. Okay, well, we're, we're coming to the last section. So I guess, you know, the, the vote happened. Uh, one of the things I remember um, very vividly is um, articles in the Times 
and the Financial Times the day after the vote, which were not about the science. Uh, they were not about the, the vote particularly. They were about this thing, which they thought was complete transformation, where the scientific community had come on the front foot, had embraced this controversy, not run, run away from it, and had acted in a very different way to the way they'd acted on GM, the GM media frenzy. And MMR and autism. And, and it felt to me like that was so widely acknowledged that the scientists this time and the good scientists, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, not that they're bad scientists, but it wasn't people who are kind of science popularizers who love the media. It was scientists like yourselves who are very, very, very busy researchers who could quite easily spend all your lives in a laboratory, but you had kind of come out of it. Um, and spoken to the media, and that was noticed as really different. And to me, this did make this story um, a real turning point. So a couple of things to ask. Uh, one, to ask the scientists um, in particular, you know, you, your kind of final reflections on it, because one of the big stories at the time was that the research councils like the BBSLC and the Medical Research Council didn't actually fund research on human-animal embryos. And a couple of the groups that had applied to them for funding were turned down. Um, so there was a bit of a kind of, oh, my God, what was that all about? You spent two years fighting for this, the vote in Parliament, you got it, and then your research wasn't even, you know, important enough or whatever. So so to answer that point, um, and then also um, I think to, to ask Fiona and, and all of you really whether um, you felt that this was a turning point and that we are still benefiting from the step change and the more proactive approach, or whether you think maybe there might be any threats to that. So two, two different questions there, but on, on the whole issue of why this research didn't end up getting funded, is that because by the time you'd fought the ban and this, as you were saying, Chris, this kind of you know real threat to the whole field, by the time you'd kind of fought and successfully beaten that off, you'd actually moved on scientifically and you were looking at more other areas. So not me personally, in the sense that, I mean, when we, you know, Ian's work on this area didn't get funded on, on those particular occasions and it wasn't core to all of my work. Yeah. Uh, and then of course, um, Yamanaka discovered a new technology, which meant that we didn't have to use uh, nuclear <coughs> transfer and that we could transform cells um, using a very small collection, a recipe of, of uh, transcription factors. So, that was a great relief. This is a technology that started in, in one or two labs and became disseminated in the, around the world within a, in a matter of 12 to, to, to 18 months. There were hundreds of labs using this technique. And that was, that was fantastic. And we didn't have to go anywhere near a, a human embryo. Um, but of course, in reality, we could have made embryos and it, it, the, the technology was far more powerful and dangerous than in, in the con, in the, in, in the perception of others, perhaps. Um, so, so, and our, our work is still making mm. um, stem cells from patient lines using those technology. And that's been incredibly powerful. It's a global technology and it's been very successful. Um, so I'm enormously grateful that, that the debate was had. But my own personal thing is I just wanted to hide um, <laughs> because I, I got a lot of stick from my peers mm. uh, for being so visible. Mm. Um, and mm. certainly it didn't help uh, my relations with my team because I was distracted mm. uh, away and, you know, I wasn't able to supervise people quite the same way. Mm. Um, and, you know, since then I've not really engaged with uh, the media in quite the same way. Um, not that I regret it. It was a really interesting time, uh, lots of interesting experiences, uh, but there's a lot of other stuff to be done and, mm. and we, we didn't mm. need to do it. 
Mm. Uh, and, you know, we've driven forward a whole area of research, which has been incredibly productive since then. So I'm delighted to ha- have had been a party to that process. Um, I learned a lot. And, and if a really important issue came by again, I'd be better, um, able to, to face those things. Yeah. But, but, um, I'm re- also really pleased that, um, science has, has got a lot more positive, uh, engagement with the press. And, you know, I think COVID is a really good example. Mm. Where these sort of scary technologies, you know, giving people viruses that, you know, carry proteins of, of viruses, um, you know, is now accepted by the vast majority of people and we've protected people and saved lives. You know, that is science coming true for, for the population. And, um, you know, that's a wonderful step forward. Well, thank you. And I think, you know, it, the message from the Science Media Center isn't that scientists have to come out of their labs and spend 10, 20 years doing media work. Um, but when it matters, um, because I just don't know what the alternative, the, the not having scientists like you out there during that 18 months, I think would have been really, you know, could have really gone the wrong way. I think this had all the ingredients of being a scare story um, that could build and build such that the public said no in the same way they had said no to GM foods only three or four years earlier because of the kind of um, failure or the, the inability of the researchers actually testing these um, um, approaches to come out and explain patiently, repeatedly. Mm-hmm. So I think you've done your time, Chris, um, but I hope you would say to others, so it sounds like you would, to say to yeah. other scientists, mm-hmm. like in the pandemic, that mm-hmm. this is your moment, go do it. But we're not expecting everyone to then, you know, make their media career more important than their scientific career. And motor neurone disease patients need you to, to focus on your research. So, so final comments from you, Robin, on, on, on the kind of, yeah, the extent to which this um, changed permanently, the, the approach of the scientific community I, I, to media. Well, I think it certainly convinces science, scientists that being proactive is, a, is the way to go. Uh, and that feeds in obviously to the whole issue of openness, uh, which, as we know, for animal research has been a really important um, development, that you, you make things open and it's harder for the opposition to criticise in a, in a meaningful way. So I think it's, it's had that, it led into that as well, in a way, this whole way of doing things. Of course, we're now faced with potential changes to the HGFA Act again, they're going to be coming up over the next year or so. And so there's going to be a lot more scope for people to get involved in discussing, <laughs> discussing these issues. And the issues are about, you know, how science can solve problems, but you, you need the, some political backing to do this. And you need so the policy work is going to be really important to get things right. You have to involve the public. Now it's clearly important to involve the public in a good way. So having a proper dialogue with the public is, is how to, to go about this. And of course, the media is going to be really important in, in doing that. Brilliant. So. Fiona? Um, I think there have been two changes in recent years. One is the one you alluded to, that, that some, um, some institutions, the press offices are very conscious of their reputation um, and they really want to avoid any sort of anything negative, any damage. It's all about damage limitation. So they may not want their scientists to get involved in these kind of debates. Now, how beholden you are to your press offices, I don't know. But perhaps if there is a scientist who's not sure whether to speak out or not, this would be a reason not to speak out. I think the other thing that's changed is that... Um, from the journalist's point of view, they have a lot 
less I think they have to write a lot more stories and cover a lot more topics than they did 10 or 15 years ago. And it'd be very hard now to get all the national journalists to make to have this as their pet topic for a year or 18 months. Um, I know that happened with COVID, but that was the only story. Um, and when they go back to their day-to-day work, they're going, they're, there are so many demands that it'd be very hard, I think, to get this sort of um groundswell of journalism um, behind one particular science story. And what what's your that's a really interesting point actually. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that before. So I, I think if it did something similar did happen, certainly you'd you'd try to get the scientists mm. out. But you're right. I mean it, those are the days I think almost when the internet wasn't a, really a thing, was it? And and you were writing stories for tomorrow's print newspaper. How old fashioned! Yeah, with Twitter. Um, you know, what was but that? you got the impact of that, didn't you? Mm. Like this idea of a, of a story being on all mm. the front pages on the same day. And you could, even if something came out at a Christmas party, you could effectively keep it yeah. secret for a fortnight yeah. or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah, um, yeah, that does sound that very old fashioned now. That wouldn't happen. Um, what's your parting shot? I think to to scientists, you said something about. Um, um, the the way you kind of enjoyed speaking to the scientists and how they were so clear in explaining it. what what what's your message to the scientists about what you what would you bottle from that um, story and I I haven't I've had a look had I did a lot of memory refreshing when I had a look back at the stories there were a couple of things that Stephen Minger said actually and I, I know he's not here which um, really resonated with me and I thought in his particular quotes. He was really good at acknowledging what the public might be thinking and, um, you know, not, not belittling it, not sort of brushing it to one side. But, you know, I think in one quote, he actually said, yes, there's a yuck factor. I acknowledge that. But this is, you know, this is what could mean for maybe for Alzheimer's, maybe for motor neuron disease, that this is why we want to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's about the scientists, it's about taking the public with you, which, which as you, you, you know that already, really. Yeah. No, I think that's a good message, though, isn't it? it not, I think there is a there is a tendency to see any public opposition to any area of science as irrational and anti-science. I mean, even even some of the concerns around vaccines get described instantly as anti-vaxxers, and you think, well, they're just worried that a very new <laughs> vaccine that has has had much less testing, in their view, it wasn't less, but in a shorter time. Um, they've just got questions. So, yeah, your starting point being, I think we've got to end now, but your starting point being the um, the concerns of the public, yeah. respecting and addressing those and, and then answering them. those and then they'd be perhaps more likely to listen to the other things you have to say. Yeah, brilliant. OK, well, we're getting, we, we've got a couple more minutes just because we can edit some of it out, but but Andy is giving us the red card here. But yes, go, yeah, just, go um, Thinking of dedicating this podcast to um, Colin Blaymore. Yes, that's My, a very who, nice who thing to an do. Incredibly yeah. brave yeah. science communicator yeah. uh, over yeah. decades, and of course, sadly died of motor mm. neuron disease very recently. Yes, yes. Um, so that is a huge loss to the scientific community, to the UK, and uh, to science communication. I think, and he he definitely, um, you know, supported me and gave me a lot of confidence about being able to communicate these things and the importance of stepping up. Yeah, uh, and doing it. Oh, that's a that's a really really nice way to end. And yes, I absolutely remember him and 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 you, Robin, and all of all of you guys, um, kind of stepping up so much. And he'd been doing it for twenty years before many other people. So yeah, that that's a nice tribute. <laughs>